This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So dealing with collection agents, pretty stressful. I mean, I've never had the opportunity to do that, but I can't imagine how stressful it must be. But there's got to be some things, some really important things that people can think about, uh, possibly while they're in the throes of it or before that happens and what they can do. Yeah, so absolutely, Elaine. Um, you know, without a doubt, collection agencies are probably the biggest referral source I have in, in my business at Sands & Associates because it's generally one of these calls or a series of these calls. They'll raise people's stress levels, you know, through the roof. They'll raise blood pressure, you know, cause psychological issues, physical issues. You know, it's not fun to owe people money, but it's doubly not fun when you've got somebody on the phone who's, you know, very well trained in how to talk down to you, how to make you feel small, how to threaten things that, you know, for the vast majority of cases, they will never ever follow through on. So for today's segment, I gave it a little subtitle called Breathing Lessons. The whole idea is if you get that collection call and you're starting to breathe, you know, shallowly and you just can't breathe, listen to today's segment. We're going to give you a little bit of peace of mind here that, you know, for the most part, it's all talk, no action with many collectors. So how does a collection agency even get involved with me? How do they find me? Why are they harassing me? Yeah, well, it's it's never when you're up to date on your debts, you know, unless there's been some mistake. But, you know, typically if you're up to date on your debts, you know, the bank really cares about you as a customer. They care about your client relationship. Uh, they care about your experience. And if you get, you know, one or two payments behind, the bank's going to be very nice and friendly with you. They're going to, you know, try to work with you and say, you know, we really value your business and we want to get you back on track here. Now, once you get to three months of delinquency, it's really funny because it's like you flick a, flick a switch at the bank there. Suddenly, they don't care about you as a client anymore and they get the heavy hitters involved, which is when they start to call in collection agencies. So normally after three months of delinquency. And and is that there? Is that a, a typical of, of all banks that they have a three month window and then after that? All bets are off, and they're it's getting outside typical. help. Yeah, okay. I've seen anecdotally. You know, sometimes it's quicker than three months. Sometimes someone's very surprised. You know, I've owed the bank money for a long time, and I haven't heard from a collector. Well, you know, sometimes it's just they can't find you. But sure. you know, typically it's after about three months that they start to get a collector involved. Okay. And now what you got to realize is that there's a cycle here, and so it's generally it's not going to be just one collector that you're going to deal with for the whole time, unless you pay up right away to that collector. You know, typically it's going to be every two to three months if you haven't made good on this debt. Um, the collector is going to start with a barrage of emails, of letters, of phone calls. Um, they're going to start to make contact with you. Um, and then if they're not successful with you over about a two or three month period, they're going to give up and things will go silent and you'll think maybe you're in the clear again. But then it's going to start again with a new company probably the next month. Okay. And what's happening there is the bank is essentially selling your debt or you know renting out your debt or whatever, basically giving a contract to collect the debt to one collector and saying, if you don't collect this debt, give it back to me in a month or two because I'm going to get someone else involved. And they'll do that progressively for years, potentially. Wow. And, you know, sometimes it'll be a bit of a race to the bottom on collectors where the first people that they assign you to, you know, they're respectful, they're nice, they want to work with you. By the time you're at the fifth or sixth time you've been assigned, it might be a collection agency where there are 
100% based on commission, and the person on the other side of the line might be in about, about as bad of a financial situation as you are, and this is how they're trying to feed their family. Got it. So I've got some collection agents as my clients, and they're not bad people. They're just people trying to do a very difficult job. Uh, but the thing that you know they really prey on is them having all of the information about what they can do, and you having none of the information and believing everything you know just as carte blanche. Right. Even if they're telling you awful things, you know, the an average person would go, "Oh, that you can't really do that." But it's still very, very frightening. Yeah. Now there is some there. I don't know if it's good news, but there is something that uh, you can kind of hang on to. Yeah, this is the about collection agencies. The, the biggest secret in the collection agency industry, biggest secret people don't know, is in general, all talk, no action. And what I mean by that is if 10,000 people owe money, 10,000 people are going to get every threat of legal action. They're going to say, we're going to take you to court, we're going to sue you, we're going to seize your wages, we're going to take your house, throw you out in the street, all those things, whether they'll put it in writing or over the phone, they will threaten that. But out of those 10,000 people, one will get sued. Okay. One in 10,000. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow, that's not a very good return if you're a collection agency. Well, it, it's a good return if you can intimidate those other 9,999 right. to do what you want them to do, do the, with, without yeah. you having to sue them. Exactly. Right? D- yeah, if they do what you want them to do. Yeah, and, and the reasons for it, it really comes down, if you think it through logically, is it's not worth their while for the vast majority of cases to actually sue you. Because uh, it you does know, cost money to sue money. somebody. It's a long, convoluted process. So if we just go through it at a high level, so you owe somebody money, they try to collect from you, if they want to take you to court, they've got to find you first off, they've got to serve you with documents, that costs some money. They've got to hire a lawyer, a lawyer's got to write up a statement of claim, that costs some money. They've got to show up in court, you know, maybe you'll show up or you won't, but either way, they'll, they'll probably get a judgment. But all of those cases there, all those steps, probably have taken them the low single digit thousands, if not more. If you owe somebody $5,000, they're not going to invest $10,000 to try to collect from you, it's just not going to happen. And even if you owe somebody a lot of money, and this is all the big banks as well, uh, even if you owe the big banks a lot lot of money, they'll still be leery to do a lawsuit against you unless they're sure that on the other side, there's actually going to be something there. And what I mean by that is if you get sued, you know, they get a judgment against you, they've won the lawsuit, you owe this money, um, what are they going to do next? Yeah. If you don't have any assets, meaning if you don't have a house with no mortgage, if you've got a house that's already got a mortgage and you don't have much equity, well, they're not going to get any money there. Yeah. If you've got the same job you've been working at for 30 years and it's for the government, well, maybe you'd get sued because they're going to try to take your wages, but that's a very small percentage of people. A lot of people are self-employed or they move jobs. So creditors know even if they pursue you and take you to court, um, get a judgment against you, they may not be able to enforce that judgment at all. Okay, so I get the call from the collection agency. I know I owe money, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to step up and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And I say, all right, well, I'll, I'll start making small payments mm-hmm. to clear my name and clear the debt. Yeah, so sometimes it can be a, a smart move. Now, first off, anything you do with a collection agency, you want to get it in writing. So if you think a collector has made some sweetheart deal with you saying, oh, you owe 5000 but give me 1250 tomorrow and we'll call it a day, make sure you've got everything in writing. This will be the time to invest a little bit of money with a legal counsel to just to make sure you're getting a full and final settlement. I've heard too many times when people have thought they've made a deal with a collection agent, they've sent the money through thinking it's full and final settlement, and the collection agent has said, well, thanks very much, but where's the other 75%? 
consent. Right. So any payments that you do make, make sure they're documented. But you're hitting on a really great point there, Elaine, um, in that sometimes collection agents, so there's often a good cop, bad cop situation. And, you know, obviously the bad cop is you're a very bad person, I'm going to take you to court, so on and so forth, really being aggressive. But sometimes the good cop is, you know, we understand things are difficult, you know, we want to work with you. If you'll start making some good faith payments, you know, even 10 or 25 or $50 a month, that'll show us that you want to work with us and we can tell the bank, hey, you're still a good client and everyone will be happy here. So sounds really positive, right? Yeah, it does. But you got to realize that you might actually be doing yourself a world of harm by doing that. Because, because it'll never end. It'll never end. <laughs> never end. Yeah, we've talked a number of times. I know our loyal listeners would know there's a statute of limitations on debts in BC. Yeah. And just for anyone who's not aware, the statute of limitations means that if you owe somebody money and you're not able to pay them, if two years goes by between your last payment um, and they haven't taken any legal action against you, they can never again take legal action against you. It's statute barred. Now, what happens is quite often you'll be a year and 10 months or a year and 11 months, all the bad cop will stop and the good cop will phone you up and say, hey, you know what, I'd love to get some partial payments here, let's work together, let's get your credit back on track, all these things like that. You make a single payment, even if it's $5, you've just reset that clock back to two years. So what's the best advice in that situation? I mean, I, I guess it depends on, on your own personal situation, but I think about... Um, you know, two years, could I handle, you know, just letting this ride for a couple of years? Maybe, right? Yeah, it's, it, everyone's situation is different. You know, I've actually been called by a collection agent once, and I, I remember these phone calls, and I remember they impacted me pretty emotionally as well. And this was, I had a rental car, we had, you know, a little fender bender, and the insurance was covering it, but there was a delay in when the insurance paid out. I couldn't get that story out of my mouth in, in 10 seconds before the gentleman and I remember. I had to refer to him as Mr. whatever his last name was, but I was Blair. So, Blair, you need to do this. And I'm like, I'm sorry, Mr. And I was, I was suddenly in, the, in this power <laughs> dynamic, uh, and I just thought, how did this guy flip it so completely? Yeah. And it's really not a fair fight. So okay. my advice in general is just don't engage. Do so not engage. Yeah, if someone's calling you, realize you're probably not going to have anything good to say to them. If you could pay the debt, you would have paid it already. You would have paid it to the bank. They're obviously sending you these letters already, and you would have paid it if you could. What's to be gained by you having a very distressing conversation with a collector where they're going to threaten things that they're probably not going to follow through on, but you're not going to sleep very well after that, maybe for weeks or months after that, because you just don't know. Okay, now here's kind of a random question. What if I then went to the bank and said, look, I'm really sorry, this is my situation, and, and dealt directly with them? Are they going to be open to that? or not open to that? Well, I definitely encourage people to try that. The first step we ask people to do is, you know, try to go to your lender and see if they will work with you. Okay. You know, if it's a case, hey, you're in between jobs for three months, you know you'll be able to make payments again, you might have a great discussion with a bank teller, with a manager or something. You might They might get you off of the collector or agree to work with you because they know the problem's going to get solved eventually. Okay. Now, if it's a case you know you're not going to be able to make good on this debt, pay it all off with interest, the bank's not going to be able to do a whole lot for you. The okay. person that's, that's going to be seeing you, usually the tools that they have is, do you need more credit or do you need a little bit of a lower interest rate um, but in terms of settling the debt for less than what you owe usually banks just don't get into that business now I know the best thing to do and I don't mean to say oh you know we need this is where we talk about coming to see you but I mean that just seems like the most logical thing to do 
It, it absolutely is, Elaine, because you know we're unbiased. So I'm an independent officer of the court. My job is to give independent views on you know the law and what protects you. And one thing that I can tell you that other people won't even tell you this exists is in the province of BC, you can say I don't consent to collection phone calls, and they have to respect that. They have to stop calling you. So I have people come into my office, and it, it just makes their day, their life, their afternoon, whatever. When I can say, here's a letter. This is a legal letter. The next collector that calls you, you get these particulars. You don't engage. You say I'm sending you a legal letter. I need this information and then you document that you've sent that letter when they continue to call or if they continue to call then you complain to consumer protection bc they will find them they will shut them down eventually so there are things you can do in bc that people won't make you aware of the collector is never going to tell you by the way you don't have to take this call you can say no (laughs) Um, but if you come and see a trustee we'll give you all the straight facts okay so that's a really good place to start is get that off your back off your daily routine listening to that barrage and then and, and then take the next steps, right? Sit down with you and figure out, okay, what do you owe? How did you get to this place? What can we do? How can we figure this out? What's the best uh, step to take now? Yeah, yeah, even just sending that letter, you'd be amazed how much easier it is to deal with something that, you know, written in front of you. You know, you can see the words on the page and what they'll write on a page is a lot different than you being in a very hostile, talking down conversation where the people are threatening things that they would never write down. So stop the calls, send the letter, don't engage and get the right help when you need it. Yeah, because we know the uh, uh, getting rid of the stress or the high stress in any situation. I mean, you can start to think a little more clearly and really look at the situation and and get the help that you need to uh, to move forward. Listen, if any of this information is resonating with you and, and you think that uh, uh, you want to take some steps but you don't know how, go see Blair. Any of his, uh, they've got offices all over British Columbia, which is lovely and uh, very easy to get a hold of. I'll give you their 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030. Uh, check out their website, sands-trustee.com. I tell you, there's so much good information written there that will... They'll write, uh, you know, frequently asked questions. I don't know how many pages it is, but it's... Pages and pages. It yeah. is, but it's <laughs> awesome because, you know, you, you will see yourself in, in something, in one place on the website as well. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us right now, Richard Moxley, a Canadian author, a terrific book. It's called The Nine Rules of Credit, How to Start, Rebuild, and Always Maintain Great Credit. He's kind of focused full-time on helping us Canadians fix, understand, and improve our credit. Uh, He's been published in the Globe and Mail. He's been on television, uh, both CBC and Global. He's all over the place. Uh, Very accomplished guy, Richard. We're so happy to have you on the show today. Well, thank you. Um, What's the the topic for today is... um, You've helped so many people, Richard, uh, figure out their credit rating. Have you got some? Have you got some stories that you can share with us about uh, the the situation the folks were in and and uh, and how they sort of maneuvered their way through? Because I know that you've had lots of contact with people. Oh yeah, I got lots of stories, and the great part about this is uh, my wife is tired of hearing about it, so now perfect. I get to uh, have a captive audience. Perfect, <laughs> perfect. So, Recorded and played over the, dinner, even. Yeah, there you go, played over and over. Um, so w- one of the, the biggest things, or one of, uh, probably the most entertaining uh, stories that I have is a girl had to read my book and called me up, and she, was, she, she wasn't rude, but she was a little... Um, 
upset. She said, you know, I'm following these rules of credit, but I still can't get a credit card. And and she told me the, the credit card company that she had applied with, and it just really didn't make sense that that she wouldn't get approved. And so I, I said, well, let, let's grab your credit reports. We'll take a look and see what's going on. Uh, well, I figured out the reason real quick, and that reason was that she was dead. <laughs> and so uh, she actually, on her credit report, her Equifax report, it was reporting her as if she had passed away. Oh, and wow. so you can see why a credit card company would not approve her for additional credit. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, we were able to get that rectified. Um, so now I, I put on my business cards, you know, I can bring people back from the dead. Which is nice. Kind of fun, but that's quite a talent. Like credit wise, just credit wise, that's all I can do. But as, uh, that that was definitely a uh, not a common one, but a, a funny one. Well, it's interesting that you touch on that, Richard, because in in our practice at Sands and Associates, um, I almost can say there's more credit reports with errors than there are ones without errors. Um, I pull yeah. mine every year, and I find new addresses, new employers, things that have nothing to do with me. And I can understand there's so many millions of Canadians and millions of data points. Uh, but even I have clients phone me and say, "Hey, this debt was in my bankruptcy. Why is it still reporting?" And we go through and we help them correct it. But I think people have to know, you know, you're, just because it's on your credit rating doesn't mean it's true. Yes. Yeah, it definitely happens. Now, I'm going to ask a rookie question here, you guys. Yes. How easy is it to check your credit rating? So t- to check the credit, if you have a credit card with your name on it, yeah. is essentially pr- pretty easy. Uh, I'm, I, I should uh, preface that. I, when I did it uh, to show some consumers how to do it, I did a video explaining how and, and to go through the ins and outs. And, and actually, to be honest, it took me 40 minutes to grab my own credit report off of the, the, the consumer websites. Uh, so it, it, it kind of depends. Um, okay. We actually just did it not too long ago, and it seems to have Im- improved a little bit, but it kind of depends on on who you are and, and, and the day of the week. Got it. <laughs> Fair enough. That's, yeah. a, that's yeah. a good enough answer for me. Yeah. So one of the other uh, common, much more common, and you had kind of uh, made reference to it, but... Uh, uh, Blair, I, I had a client that had called me up and he had got my name from a trustee and the the problem he was facing was that he was getting declined for mortgage financing. So he was originally approved, but then something showed up on his credit report and he had already waived conditions, so now he was on the hook for the mortgage. And then this error came up and it was costing him a lot of panic and a lot of headache. and if we didn't get it corrected, would essentially cost him and his parents probably about $40,000 wow. uh, with different fees and, and uh, payout penalties and, and different things. And he had to get his parents involved because he had no way of doing it. And, of course, his parents love him and, and want to help. And so now they were on the hook, and that was stressing him out even more because mm. he felt like he was being taken advantage of, but he didn't see any other way to avoid the lawsuit that would have came from running away from the mortgage financing. So he gave me a call, and I was really glad that he did because it was errors that had been left over from a proposal that he had entered into. And after three years, everything in a proposal can be removed. So the public record and any creditors that were included can be forced off the credit report. The problem is is that a lot of times that doesn't happen. And so that's where I was able to get involved. 
and within two days, we got everything corrected, and within a couple more days, he was able to get approved for best rates with a major bank. Wow. So to give you an idea, he was going to be charged 8% with the lender because of where he was at, but because we were able to get the errors off, he then qualified with a major bank and was down to 2.75%. So you can imagine he was pretty happy. <laughs> yeah, I hope he left you a nice Google review on that one. <laughs> he did, actually. Yeah. He's been great, and he's been sending all his, uh, you know, the the, the mortgage broker, because uh, he had three of them uh, that he had kind of gone through to try and find a solution. Uh, they were all uh, pretty amazed, and then the real estate agent, for sure. And so I've been getting lots of good uh, referrals from them. Well, and I think part of it, too, is the calls that I get when it's about a credit rating, it's almost always urgent because they are literally yeah. in the mortgage broker's office or the bank's office or things like that. And for the average person that wants to correct something quickly, are they able to do that, Richard, or do they need to work with someone like yourself, a professional, to get really quick results if it's an urgent situation? Yeah, and essentially that's why I started eCreditFix, which is uh, the full-time company that I do to remove errors and fraud. And there are avenues for people or the consumers to, to try and fix their credit report themselves. And you can definitely try that. Um, but if you're trying to get it done in a hurry, for sure, uh, this is something that I've never seen happen. Uh, they generally take anywhere between two to six months on average. Is oh, wow, kind of what weeks, months. My clients have told me. Yeah, a month. Okay. And so if, if you're in the thick of mortgage financing, uh, this is not a time frame that generally works well. And my history with mortgage financing really helps because I, I understand the process and because I know the lenders, I know the banks, I, I can talk with the broker or the, the mortgage specialist and, and I can interact with them and take it off the hands of the consumer so they don't have to try and be the third party or try and guess what's happening. Oh, that, that's great. Um, and we're just down to about you know the last last few minutes or so, Richard. I wonder, would you want to give our, our listeners a sense of what services do you provide? Just in, in a few seconds here. Yeah, you bet. So th- there's really two major services that I provide. So when it comes to credit score, if if you're wanting to learn the rules of credit, what affects the credit score, then I can I can do that for you. We can grab copies of the credit reports, or you can provide them with me. Uh, provide them to me, and then we can go through them in detail. I share my screen with you. You ask questions. I give you the answer. I'll ask questions just to make sure everything's correct. And then the other service that I provide is removing errors and fraud off the credit reports. So if you have something where you've tried to get it off or the whole financial situation is just where you you just don't want to deal with it at all, then I can help a lot or a little, however, however you want me to get involved. But I, I do have direct access to Equifax and TransUnion, where you would call Equifax and get the Philippines. <laughs> I get the actual Equifax people in here here in Canada, and they know me very well <laughs> because that's all I do. And we we get things done much faster than trying to get it done through the, the typical, typical scenario. Richard, what's the best way for uh, someone to reach you? How, how How's the best way to do that? So... The, probably the best way is email. Um, so you can find all my contact information at ecreditfix.ca. Great. And then uh, my email is just info at ecreditfix.ca. 
uh, and my toll-free number is on the website as well. Excellent. Uh, so keep that in mind. eCreditFix.ca is the website to get a hold of Richard. Uh, Richard uh, Moxley, author of a book called The Nine Rules of Credit, How to Start, Rebuild, and Always Maintain Great Credit. He's on uh, Facebook and Twitter and all over the place. Richard, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invite. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us right now is Andrew Smith. He's a licensed insolvency trustee with Sands & Associates. Andrew's got over nine years of experience in providing both business and personal debt management solutions. He's a very straightforward guy. We'll be the judge of that, Andrew. Very personable as well, helping folks assess their situation and evaluate legal debt solutions. Understands that debt uh, help can seem pretty complicated and overwhelming, uh, but believes with the right knowledge and friendly approach, it doesn't have to be. Number one piece of advice, and I'm going to ask you about this, Andrew. I love this. Always read the terms of contracts and agreements before signing. You should know exactly how much it's going to cost you to repay any money you borrow and how these costs fit into your monthly cash flow. It sounds like pretty, I mean, it's good common sense. Uh, how often do you run into folks who haven't done that? Is it, a, is it common, Andrew? Yeah, it is fairly common. Unfortunately, some people, uh, they, they're they excited about their purchase or uh, the thing they might need to acquire uh, in the sense of maybe getting a loan to buy a car. They're, they're really excited about the car, uh, and they don't really read the terms to find out exactly how much it's going to cost them over the long haul. And the long haul, I bet that's the key, right? You look at your monthly payment and then think, okay, well, that that's doable, but it's going to go on for... You know, I don't know how long a car loan can go on for, but years and years, and it in, in some yeah. Nowadays, they, nowadays they can do they can uh, do a car loan up to eighty four months. Wow! Uh, and that can really uh, that's almost seven years, and really can push uh, people's cash flow uh, for the long time. Yeah, and, and Andrew, if you can believe it, I actually had a client um, a couple weeks ago. It was eight years of financing, so I couldn't believe that. I'm like, so twelve times eight? What is that? That's like ninety six months of financing. Yeah. Oh my lord! Like that's a long time to be making a payment. Yeah, it is. It is. So one of the things we're going to focus on with you, Andrew, is folks who are self employed, how they get into trouble with debt, and what can be done about it. Um, so. Let's talk about sort of the most common thing that you come across. Yeah, the most common uh, creditor that I find uh, anybody that has is a self-employed individual. Uh, usually they're ending up owing money to the Canada Revenue Agency for personal income taxes and GST. So that's uh, the, uh, the com- most common creditor is Canada Revenue. Yes, it is. Wow. That, that's usually because from filing taxes at the end of the, end of the year and just realizing maybe they don't have the money saved set aside to pay that debt. So how does somebody get into that kind of situation? Like, what what aren't they doing? Uh, what I find with dealing with my clients is that usually there's a number of things of how this debt arises. Uh, sometimes it's from just when they go to file their taxes um, and their GST returns, they're, they realize they're not making the... Um, regular installments to towards the obligations. Uh, so when you're a self-employed person, 
uh, CRA usually wants you to file um, monthly or quarterly installments with them and pay pay something towards that debt. But when what happens is when they actually go and file their return, um, they might not have actually made those installments. Um, sometimes people actually just don't file their income tax returns um, or file their GST returns that they've signed up to do, and CRA just turns around and looks at past performance of what they've had filed, and then they assess them for an amount. Um, and in that case, they get a letter saying, hey, you owe um, this amount of money, and a person is kind of shocked about it too. Now, Andrew, one of the challenges that I have when I sit down with folks who are self-employed is that, you know, basically anybody can become self-employed at any time. You know, you don't have to take a crash course. There's really nobody that gives you, you know, here's the pitfalls that you need to to look out for. So I wonder, Andrew, can you just kind of break it down? You know, what are the basic things you're talking about, you know, installments? What what does that mean for someone, um, you know, who has a a basic, basic business? And then also GST, just for someone who maybe is not self-employed or has started and maybe isn't doing things right. What should they be concerned about on those, those two factors that you mentioned, the installments and the GST? Yeah, so installment payments, uh, I mean, so the government wants you to actually uh, make a monthly payment towards what you might actually owe at the end of the year. So, so if, if you, you thought you were going to owe, you know, $10,000 in taxes, they'd want, you know, just under $1,000 a month. Is that, is that right? They yeah, want to wait or every... Yeah, and every quarter they might want you to pay $3,000. So once a month, pay $1,000 so that you meet that $3,000 quarterly payment. Um, with GST, usually someone might have to file their return uh, quarterly or even annually. Uh, so when, what a self-employed person should be doing is tracking what, they've <clears throat> what they're actually collecting in GST from their customers, uh, as well as how much GST they're paying when they're buying supplies. So that then at the end of the year when they file that return, they can uh, take the two differences and then they should be making a a remittance to the government for that balance of the GST that's owing. So I think that's an important Uh, point too. So if if someone's self-employed and they're charging GST... Um, you know, they are actually able to recover some of that GST. To your point, Andrew, if they've got to keep all their receipts for purchases in their business. But, you know, I've seen that again and again. People pay GST, but they don't actually know that they can recover some of it on their purchases. Yeah, and that's the, and that's something sometimes uh, I deal with that with my clients as well, is they, they sometimes don't realize that they're actually overpaying uh, on their GST back to the government because of they're not tracking uh, their their GST that they're paying, and that is the important thing that they have to do is they have to keep those receipts so that they can prove it to the government that yes, I have paid this GST, and then be allowed to deduct that against what they've collected. So it sounds like the there's a definite need for either the self-employed person to be an extraordinarily good bookkeeper, or they need to have a good bookkeeper that's that's kind of knowledgeable, pretty knowledgeable about what a self-employed person's taxes look like or, or yeah, from day to day, week to week, and then at the end of the day, knowing what their tax situation is going to look like. Yes, it is. Uh, I mean, they do have to be organized. I, what I tell my clients is that try to find yourself a good bookkeeper. Um, reason is, is because I, uh, as a as a um, insolvency professional, I'm good at insolvency. But if I were to be doing my own plumbing, um, that's not something I have any skill in, um, and I would be making mistakes. Um, so I I tell them, hey, take your all your receipts, put them in an envelope, 
uh, pass them off to your bookkeeper, get them to prepare and record your transactions so that then you know um, someone's tracking it and then they can give you a report saying, uh, to, in respect to your GST, they can do a report telling you, okay, this is how much you owe. And then you know that, okay, I, I have to make a remittance to the government, say, of $500 to pay the GST. And at least then at the end of the year, when you when you come to the um, year, get your final, your, you file that GST return, you know that, hey, I've made installments towards that debt. And now I don't have a, any, a large bill to pay. And Andrew, what does that relationship look like with with a bookkeeper? You know, it's that have to be you know a CA or a CPA. Is that someone that would cost a lot of money? You're meeting them all the time, or what do you think? You know, a good working relationship. You know, and again, let's assume it's a relatively straightforward, you know, self-employed individual, perhaps a tradesperson or something like that. You know, what would they really need from a bookkeeping relationship? Do you think? Well, I think they need to have uh, some confidence in who the person uh, they're dealing with. It doesn't have to be a CA or a CPA. Um, to do the bookkeeping side, but if you have a, a really good relationship with uh, with this, your accountant, they might be able to recommend a good CPA and or sorry a bookkeeper. Uh, but you might only need them to do maybe ten hours of work a month, uh, and that might cost you a couple hundred dollars uh, to do. But uh, it would give you the peace of mind to know that th- this is all being recorded, this is all all being tracked, so that at the end of the day you can rest. Uh, and know that you're not uh, left with a large tax bill. And, and Andrew, Elaine and I, we, we talk a lot on the show, you know, about owing money and how it can be pretty scary. And, uh, you know, obviously you can't choose who you owe money to. Um, but why don't we spend a minute, you know, from your perspective, why is the government somebody that you really wouldn't want to owe money to compared to others? Yeah, uh, I wouldn't want to be owing the government a lot of money because they do have uh, the power to uh, to come after you uh, in different in ways that, say, your fi- your financial institution can't. Um, they can garnish your bank account. Uh, they can send notices to your, your customers and request uh, that they, they pay the money that they owe you uh, to the government rather than paying it to yourself. So that's incredibly um, disruptive, right? Not, not to mention embarrassing. They're basically cho- choking off your livelihood at the source there. Yeah, yeah. And if the... Yeah, it is. And what also the the government can do is they can register the debt in federal court and then put a lien against your property. So you might not even know that uh, um, that you have a lien against your property uh, until they actually notify you. Um, and that's the that's the hard part as a self-employed person if you get yourself into a situation where you do owe the government uh, quite a bit of money um, and they have not been able to collect that money from you. Hmm. So that, that's so a little bit of a tough situation to be in, obviously. And, and Andrew, I know day to day you meet with people who are in these situations. Um, you know, what type of options exist if you owe the government money? Because I know, uh, you know, obviously from having guests on this show and from sitting down in my day to day, a lot of people are of the opinion there's nothing you can do if you owe the government money. Uh, you've got to pay it, or come, you know, come anything, you're going to pay this debt one way or the other. Um, is that true, or Andrew? What are the options? Well, the people, as a self-employed person, they do have some various options under the, the legislation. Um, they do have the ability to file a consumer proposal if their debts are under $250,000. Um, and they could make an offer to the government to pay back uh, something less than what they actually owe um, and not have them garnish their bank accounts uh, They could, and have their accounts receivable seized. Or, and they, that could stop a lien being put on their property. Um, another option, if 
it was a worst case scenario for them in the sense they didn't have any other they couldn't file a consumer proposal they could file bankruptcy um, and and start fresh um, and depending on what their their financial situation is their bankruptcy could be nine months to uh, to 21 months yeah, so definitely not a lifelong sentence to deal with the debt and nothing you'd want to take lightly. But uh, I think for people to understand there is hope out there and, you know, government debt, as I often say, it's the same as every other debt. We, we can deal with it. We can help to restructure it. Um, Andrew, I wonder if we can talk just a little bit about some pieces of advice. Um, so, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, getting a bookkeeper, and that seems like a really strong piece of advice for someone who's self-employed. Uh, what else? If someone is listening here, and again, maybe they're just starting off in business, or they might already find themselves in a state where they owe the government, uh, what's what's another piece of advice beyond a bookkeeper, do you think? Uh, well, finding a good bookkeeper is definitely, the I, I think, the top um, advice that I can always give people. But I think even if you are going to track, uh, or you just don't have a very um, large business, uh, you can, can just make monthly installments to the government. Um, so maybe you don't actually know how much you're going to owe them, but if you make a, a monthly payment to the government for your personal income taxes um, or your G, or towards your GST account, um, the government has, has to recognize that when you actually file the returns and then give you credit for those payments. That's so really that good information, that. Andrew. Listen, if any of this information is resonating with you and you want more, go to the Sands & Associates website. It's sands-trustee.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. You know, it's always so great when we get a chance to hear from a real person who's gone through either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal uh, to find out how they got to that place and then realize that if they got the right help, they could get out of all that worry, the stress of a large debt, or an ever-increasing debt, whatever the circumstances. Uh, we're so lucky to have Christy on the show with us right now, on the line with us. Uh, Christy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. We're so happy. Uh, we just Blair and I just both so believe that when people get a chance to hear other folks uh, talk about their situation, um, it can be so helpful because they all of a sudden feel they're not alone and that maybe they can take the same kind of steps that you did. So we really appreciate you being able to do this. Great. Thank you. So can you first uh, tell us uh, about your unique situation that brought you to Sands & Associates? Sure. Um, I had lost my job where I was making a really great salary and I couldn't find a job within the city that I lived in with a comparable salary. And so I was actually forced to change my career path. And that's what brought me to Sands & Associates. And that's significant. And you're also not alone because we know that that happens to folks and it probably happens more time more times than we than we can imagine um so thank you for thank you for sharing that uh and often it takes people a long time to be able to take the take the next step of getting help can you talk about how long it took you from from point to point before you started um you know to when you decided you needed some help well, I actually only waited two months, but I knew the seriousness of my situation immediately. 
and I didn't want to wait too long to try and fix it. And when I had spoken to my family, they agreed that if I wasn't able to get on the correct path quickly, it would be pretty bad for my credit. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you know the seriousness of your situation? What, what was going on in, in your life with your finances at that time? Well, I definitely wasn't able to make my payments anymore. I was mm-hmm. able to just pay barely pay rent. Okay. And I knew that the phone calls would start, and they did. And of course, it's difficult to try and speak to creditors on the phone. They don't, they don't tend to want to work with somebody all the time. And so I knew that I had to take a different step because I wasn't able to pay them properly. Now, what were some of those conversations like, Christy, if you don't mind elaborating a bit? Because I have um, people come in the door and it's like, you know, they've, they've seen a ghost sometimes or they've just gotten off the phone with some collectors just from, you know, the type of, of tactics or tone or different things like that. Did you find it was different collector to collector? What was your experience? Um, some of the collectors, you could tell that they were reading from a manual that they had mm. been given, but others were were very unkind. They were trying to indicate that I should use a credit card to make a payment. Hmm. And if I couldn't, then they were indicating I should get a loan to make a payment. Right. And when I explained to them, I actually cannot do any of those things. It's not not capable for me. I can't go out and get a loan just to pay another debt. They usually were quite rude to me on the phone, indicating that it was going to be on my credit report for a very long time and that I would never be able to buy a home and they would start in on those kinds of spiels. Wow. So good for you not to believe any of that and mm-hmm. and to know better. I mean, boy oh boy, Christy, you were you were pretty lucky uh, that you had you had that knowledge that you knew that you couldn't follow the path that they wanted you to and that there was a better way. Mm-hmm, exactly. So how did you find Sands and Associates? Oh, they were so kind. They um they made me feel, feel very comfortable and reassured that there would be a solution. Mm-hmm. And there was no judgment. They were very compassionate towards me and walked me through each step of the process, explaining what my options were and that if we couldn't go in one direction, that there was another one that we could try. Mm-hmm. And they never made me feel like I was less than. They didn't judge me for my situation or how I even got to this point over the years. And, and Christy, can you share a bit? What did we actually help you with respecting your confidentiality? I've given no background, you know, on anything here, but, um, you know, obviously we help with bankruptcies and with proposals. And sometimes we end up just, you know, giving some free advice on pe- how people can deal with their debts. Are you comfortable mm-hmm. saying, you know, what we were able to assist you with? Absolutely. Um, when I went in, we discussed bankruptcy, and then they started telling me more about consumer proposals. I had never even heard of a consumer proposal before. Mm, and the collectors and never so, tell you that either. <laughs> that, no, that, they don't. That's something. It's information I, I, warfare, right? Yes. I immediately thought that I would have to claim bankruptcy. And so hearing they, they walked me through the consumer proposal process and let me know what it meant and how long it would take and what it meant for me for the future, and gave me the time to just even think about it, go home, talk to my husband, decide what was best for us. And it was actually a really great feeling to know that someone was on my side. Hmm. So so you ended up going with the consumer proposal? Yes, I did. Great. And what surprised you about that? 
process, ha- having never even heard of it before. And believe me, you are not alone in that. Uh, mm-hmm. What was what were the things that surprised you or that you liked about it the best? Well, I liked the fact that it wasn't claiming bankruptcy, that it was significantly different from claiming bankruptcy. Um, the fact that you could, at the end of your consumer proposal, try and build up your credit right away, that um, creditors in the future wouldn't tend to look as badly towards you when you had a consumer proposal, that they would tend to want to work with you seeing the work you've done to try and pay your debts off. Sure. I just can't help but think that this has impacted you in sort of how you view finances. I mean, you were in a a wonderful position in that you had a terrific job and were making really, really good money and then obviously made another career choice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, What kind of, how has it impacted your sort of attitudes or behavior towards your finances? It's completely changed my view on income and debt. Interesting. Yes, realizing that it's important to get a handle on debt, it was a huge learning curve for me. I definitely was not taught that growing up from my parents. I wasn't taught that once I was out of school, and it's been trial and error. And it definitely, having the consumer proposal showing me what, what I had done to my own credit to begin with and then how I could fix it. I didn't want to go backwards. I wanted to make sure I was going forwards and now I knew how much your credit is important and that consumer proposal can help move you in the right direction to try and correct any past mistakes. And Christy, do you have any words of advice or words of wisdom for someone who might be in a similar position, you know, someone listening to the show who's maybe thinking, oh my God, I didn't know about a proposal existed. You know, what, what type of advice would you give to someone if, you know, if it was yourself a number of years ago? I would tell them to try to not be so hard on yourself. That's good advice. It's very common to struggle to manage debt, but that there's so many resources out there and wonderful people who are willing to help you pull yourself out of the vicious cycle and that having debt doesn't make you a bad person. Mm -hmm. And it often doesn't take much of a change in your life to completely offset everything that's going on around you and make debt start to compound so quickly. And could you describe uh, in, in a few sentences where you are right now in your life? Well, right now, um, we are obviously I'm paying my consumer proposal off. And so I keep, I keep an eye on my um, credit rating to see how it's doing. And I'm also taking the knowledge that I have and imparting it on my husband and my son. Nice. So that at least they won't make the same mistakes that I did. And that credit is something that you have to be careful with, that it isn't just, it isn't a toy, it isn't a game, and, and, and people don't often get explained that when they're young and can apply for a credit card. Absolutely. Christy, that was great. You've given, you've given uh, a, our listener a lot of really, really good information. Uh, if you'd like to check out uh, the uh, Sands & Associates website, it's terrific. It's sands-trustee.com. 
or you can give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Get that first free consultation uh, to find an office near you and get started on uh, living this debt-free life that we've heard Christy tell us about. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.